What is happening, everybody? Welcome to Off the Rails, a recovery podcast dedicated to ending the stigma of addiction through open discussion on all things recovery related. My name is Mark, and with me always are Dave and Jared. And today we have a very special guest, and Jared is going to introduce her. Yep. Today we got Dr. Stacy Murphy, and uh, she specializes in family support and addictions. And I think we're all very excited and our families are too, to hear what she has to say. So welcome, Stacy. Thank you. Stacy. thank you so much for joining us today. I'm excited to be here to talk about all things family and addiction and recovery. Yeah, we're really grateful to have you. Um, so Stacy, first off, where are you from? I am in Pine Hill, New Jersey, a little town outside, uh, sort of near the Jersey Shore, but not what everybody thinks of as the Jersey Shore. So further south near Atlantic City, New Jersey. That's where I live now with my husband and two dogs and a cat. Okay. Have, are you, have you always been from there? Yes. Grew up, born and raised? Born and raised. Yeah. Dave is a huge Jersey Shore fan, by the way. Well, the Eagles just won their fifth game, so we're pretty pumped. We live right outside of Philadelphia. Good stuff. Yeah, they got a good team this year. Yeah. <laughs> so, yes. Stacey, um, we're really interested in kind of how you got involved in the work that you do and kind of your background story. Um, so if you'd like to share that with us, we are all ears. Awesome. So I am the daughter of two alcoholic parents that both died in their addiction and never really realized how much it affected my behaviors, my attitude, my life until fast forward 40 years. And my daughter started using weed at 15 and was using heroin by 16. And at the time I was in nursing school. So I went to nursing school at the age of 40 and my daughter was in active addiction for six years and it culminated in many, many trips to rehab, me being addicted to her addiction and not really having anywhere to turn for help. So I took my nursing journey in another direction uh, rather than typical bedside nursing. I became a nurse educator and then I got a doctorate in how addiction impacts families in 2019. So I, I went to school for 10 years and it culminated in a pretty hard one doctorate because the school didn't want me to study how addiction impacted families. And in fact, they actually changed my doctoral chair because the one that the first one I had told me that I couldn't find a lot of research about the topics because it wasn't important. And I was pretty glad she lived in Kansas and I didn't and um, that we were not in close proximity to each other. So I threatened to quit the program and they reassigned me to someone who understood that studying families of addiction and uh, families of people with substance use disorder was super important, but it was a groundbreaking study because it's not studied. So at the end of that time, I realized the gap in education because we have Al-Anon, we have Naranon. I went there at some point, I was pretty excited to go. And I thought, well, this is where all my questions are going to be answered. And they're going to tell me how to get my daughter clean. Raise your hand if you think that worked. No, nobody. 
<laughs> it didn't work. Yeah. So I went in, I was like, oh my gosh, this, I brought a notebook. I got there early. I was so excited. This is where I'm going to get all the answers. And what they said was love her from a distance. So that might've worked in 1974 when they started, but she was 16 years old. So loving her from a distance, and I didn't make a spare. She was like the only one I have. Right. So I didn't, there was nobody to, um, to back <laughs> her up. Right. So I, uh, started studying this and realized that other than Al-Anon and Naranon, there was not a lot of support. So I started an organization and we started as an app. So we were the only app that supported families and loved ones of addicts. We have a 24 hour crisis hotline. We have a lot of really cutting edge stuff on the app and then started a company that works directly with facilities to support them in supporting their families. And that's pretty much how it started. That is uh, that's incredible. Um, I know for myself, I've been to two different treatment centers, um, one with, say, a family program and the other with not. And, you know, the difference is day and night. Right. So the interesting thing about you saying that is many places consider themselves as having a family program because they have a two or three day once a month intensive. And that's not family help or family support. We meet three nights a week with the families of our clients, and we have people that have come three nights a week, so three hours a week for 10 months. I mean, imagine that commitment of time, never missing a meeting. And I, every night is a different topic, and we talk about boundaries and codependency and manipulation, but the wildest thing to me, and maybe you guys can chime in and, and give me some insight, is we we're having so much trouble getting facilities to understand why they would need us. And a lot of them are, are saying, you know, this once a month intensive kind of checks the box of them having a family program when in fact it's really not. Cause a lot of, I mean, it's not really, and I don't know what your experience is, but it's not that well attended because people can't cause they have, you know, jobs and lives. Um center we went to we all went to the same center up in canada and their family program i think is one of the better ones up here because they do they do like a meeting with uh all the families once a week i know with like even with my mom that helped her a lot but uh and she kept doing it too like i'm pretty sure she still does it and i'm like why are you doing this but i now like that I see how much it does help. You can kind of see why they're doing it, just like why an addict goes to meetings or whatever, right? Yeah, I mean, we there are some meetings where there are 55 people on there just trying to figure out, and their loved one is in all different stages of the continuum. So there are people where they're just finding this out and their loved one is in detox or their loved one could have been in recovery for six years and they're still trying to find help and their loved one is just an alumni of the facilities that we work with and they got sort of tagged on to attend these meetings but there is a lot of strength in them the families coming together on a regular basis we have a private facebook group for each facility and we send them updates and we send them 
you know, some spiritual stuff and, and all different kinds of things. But there are family members that don't even know what PHP is, or they don't know, you know, what their loved one says, I want to come home early. And they're like, yes, it's great. Come home early. And we're like, no, 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 that's not as great as you might think it is. And they just don't know. I remember in sort of the, when, when I started the company, uh, I was in a uh, social media group for families of people in recovery. And a mother said, should I turn my daughter's cell phone off? And people were like, yes, hard consequences, rock bottom. And I said, if it helps you to sleep at night to keep the cell phone on, keep the cell phone on. And they actually kicked me out of the group, (laughs) like just banned. Not even like a warning shot. I was just banned. But our platform is there's no one right way to do this, right? Because if I gave you a recipe and said, this is how you make chocolate chip cookies. One of the things that's not in chocolate chip cookies is Tabasco, right? Don't add any hot sauce, right? You you realize that that's like a great idea, right? But in, in the family space, it's all so different the commonalities, the disease, and the family dynamic is so unique to each family. So the thing that we say is there's no one right way, but we can tell you that based on our experience, if you're getting hurt, get out. If you're getting abused, get out. If you're not safe, get out. Anything other than that is open for discussion. So we do one-on-one coaching with families, uh, especially people that don't have the, the strength to say, you can't come home yet, or, you know, I I've had enough. Um, I, I have a lot of anger. We can't, you know, we talk a lot about feelings because the family members don't know what they're feeling. They just can't even get in touch with that because they're so just plugged into what is my loved one doing and feeling. And I don't know if you had that experience with your own families. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. See, one question I had for you, um, you've mentioned it like, uh, well, you mentioned rock bottom and then you mentioned, say, your daughter was young and like to view from a distance kind of point of view. Um, So, you know, when I, one of the first questions, my sister, so I reached out to her and I was explaining to her and she was like, I really want to know what she thinks about the thought of letting someone hit rock bottom or the topic of enabling, because I guess like as a family member, you don't, you don't view enabling as like a great thing, but uh, I guess like from their point of view, like they're trying to, they're trying to stop you from dying. Right. And they don't know that they're enabling and, you know, they're trying to keep you off the street or whatever it is. Um, It can be a really tough, tough place for a family member to be in. And I just wonder what your thoughts were on that. So I think the the one thing to remember in that situation is what are the specifics, right? So if this is somebody that it, that is your family member and they're using, and you're pretty certain it's heroin, and now in in our area anyway, it's pretty much only fentanyl. The idea of putting them in the street is you're basically sending them out to die, right? But if they won't go to treatment and they're in your home and they're nodding out and you're narcanning them and the police are coming and your, your other children are seeing that, or your other family members are seeing it and you can't go to work and you can't sleep. It's almost like, do you save yourself or do you try and save them? 
right? So there's not one clear answer, right? And I think that interventions are great. I think they should be led by professionals. I think that sometimes you're too close to really, and too emotional to be uh, the leader of the intervention. But I know for my daughter, she relapsed six times. Um, the shortest time was 90 minutes from airport to relapse. So within that 90 minutes, I actually frame thought time, that two things on my part were, that I had going for me is I was pretty smart and I had a little bit of money. So I thought those two things were going to fix my daughter. Raise your hand if you think that happened. No, it didn't. No, not any amount of smarts, not any amount of money, not following her, not begging, not pleading, not taking away the car, taking away the phone. Nothing happened until she was ready. Right. And I don't, I guess it was considered rock bottom because at the at the height of her addiction, she was 85 pounds. She's stunningly beautiful. And I'm not saying that because I'm her mother, but she could not have survived on the street. She was living with her dad and he said, it's rehab or the street. And that last rehab saved her life and being involved with Narcotics Anonymous has kept her clean and sober for 10 years. Naranon was not the right program for me because I went there for answers and they said, no crosstalk, uh, just listen to the stories and we're not going to give you any advice and love her from a distance. Now it, it works for many, many people. Our sort of approaches, tell me more about the situation and we'll offer you up something based on our experience. And Mark, to your point, overdosing now is so much scarier and lethal than it was 10 years ago because of the introduction of fentanyl. So it, there's no one right way to say that. Um, but I, I do know that for many people, their money is being taken, their jewelry is being stolen, their house is being used, you know, at, basically as a, you know, place to do drugs. And that's not sustainable either. So many times it's, you know, you, you got to go, but then, you know, a lot of people think, well, now it's on my conscience if they do overdose. Stacy, the, uh, I never realized how much of an impact my addiction caused for my family. Can you maybe give some like examples of what families go through mentally that's a great question. So I had 178 people in my study, right? When I got my doctorate and it's sort of a fair number, right? There's some studies that have a lot less, some that have more. The unique thing about my study that almost never happens is you all have taken surveys in your life, I'm sure. And it says always, sometimes never. And it's a series of questions. There wasn't one person out of 178 people that answered sometimes or never to the questions. And the questions were, did your loved one's substance use impact your finances, your sleep, your stress level, your physical well-being, your mental well-being, your job, cause you to lose time from work? There was, and now they didn't answer every single question as a yes, but nobody said maybe or no to more than half the question. So it impacted every single person out of 178. And usually there's people that fall sort of on the outliners of the bell curve, right? 5% to the left or to the right. And 
for many people, it's this overwhelming sense of anxiety and powerlessness that translates into every aspect of their life. So they can't sleep. And if they do fall asleep out of sheer exhaustion, they wake up two in the morning checking their phone. You would have thought my phone was glued to my hand for the six years of my daughter's addiction. I went to the hospital twice thinking I was having a heart attack. The one time they brought me back before a man that had fallen out of a tree from like eight stories high. And they brought me back before him. And I feel bad to this day. I kind of owe him an amends because they thought I was having a heart attack and he had fallen out of his tree. And mine was sheer panic because I thought this is the day I'm going to get the call that she's dead. Right. And that translates to your work life because you're crying at work, you're looking at your phone, you're tracking them, you are looking at their bank balance, you're looking at where they're taking out money in an ATM, you're, you know, find my iPhone, Life360, all the technology now. And meanwhile, your work is getting further and further behind. You can't sleep. Uh, My marriage did not survive. At that time, I was married to a man that was her stepfather. Um, so he couldn't understand it. He, he wasn't able to accept. Um, he wasn't, I guess he spaced out in the for better or for worse part of the vows because he did not accept the fact that, oh, by the way, now my daughter's a drug addict. And he had two sons that were, uh, I hate this word, but normies. Uh, and it really put a strain on the marriage. And it does that to families across the board, it also puts a strain on other relationships. So if your parents or your loved ones have other children or other family members that aren't going through this, those people feel completely disconnected and out of the circle because every single bit of energy is placed on what's going to happen with the marks of the world and what are they, you know, what are they doing today? And is he okay? And where is he? And that's all we're talking about. And your brother's in school and he's like, I got an A on my science project and I scored the winning goal in soccer. What about me? And that resentment sort of starts to build. And a lot of people think, well, the best way to get attention in this family is to act up, right? So I'm going to act up. I'm going to do some crazy stuff because that's where all the attention is going, right? So, and then a lot of people, if they weren't substance users themselves, they start to drink a little more, they start to eat a little more donuts, they start to shop a little bit more, they start to gamble a little bit more because, I mean, the genetic component of this, there's 26 identified genes that directly link addiction to genetics. And if you add trauma as a child on top of that, that's another 30% increase in the likelihood of becoming an addict. So when I, so the facilities that we work with, one of them is local. So I'll go in and do a local meeting every week and it's the client and the family member. And I'll say, raise your hand if you have a history of addiction. And I love it when people don't raise their hands because then I get to go, well, tell me about grandma. And they'll be like, well, she drank a little bit and you know, it was only after seven and she went in her room and it was just brown liquor. And, you know, she might've collected dolls. I mean, there was 5,000 dolls in the house when she died. And I'm like, yeah, that's addiction. 
Like she was addicted to shopping and brown liquor. And they're like, no. And I'm like, but it is, that's what it is. I mean, I had a guy and he went, I'm not an addict. I'm like, are you sure? At nothing at all. He goes, well, I have 600 hats. And I said, well, how many heads do you have? He was like, one. I was like, yeah, you have 600 hats. That's like, there was no balance there. Like that's a big commitment to hats, right? He's like, well, I used to smoke crack and then I stopped and I started collecting hats. And I'm like, yeah, yeah. So it's so, it's so far reaching, right? It's so far reaching. I mean, I have people that come to these meetings and they think that their side of the street is clean, right? And they're like, no, nothing. And I'm like, do you smoke? Oh yeah. Um, do you consider yourself a healthy weight? Cause I don't ever want to call anybody fat because at the height of my daughter's addiction, I was 200 pounds. I'm only five feet tall. Y'all can't tell, but I look like a little bowling ball with eyes, right? Because you can't be five feet tall and 200 pounds. Cause my addiction, it was like, I just put sugar on top of all of the anxiety and fear. And then I covered it in belts, scarves and shoes, right? It just, when it manifests in stuff like drugs and alcohol, that's when we're paying attention, right? We're not paying attention to, oh, mom's 50 pounds overweight. You know, that's okay. Which is also like a fascinating, you know, piece of the whole addiction puzzle. Stacey, I had a question. Uh, We had a, we had a guest on not too long ago who um, kind of mentioned he's against the idea of addiction being genetic or a disease um so i don't want to and i I don't want to get into i don't even want to necessarily get into into debating that but is there a correlation between people having more success in recovery when the when like the family members and themselves actually realize and accept the fact that it's genetic or disease like is there versus someone that might shut that out well where it where it sort of plays out is the communication, right? Because if we knock the shame aspect out away from this, right? If we take the shame out of it and we start to talk about grandma or our aunt that, by the way, you're not alone. The All of these people in our family, like I'm going to ask the three of you, raise your hand, family history. Okay. Yeah. So it's, I would be really, really interested to have a conversation with somebody that thought it was not genetic because again, when you dig a little deeper, it is genetic and it doesn't always present in the way that it presents with the addict of at hand, right? But if we're able to communicate within the family and stops saying, oh, I'm not gonna tell anybody, don't tell this one, they have a big mouth, Oh, but they knew about this person, but I'm not going to tell them that my son is in rehab. If we could take all that off the table and start having a conversation about it, the addict doesn't feel as much shame. The family member that, you know, we, we have people that don't find out for years. Oh, my uncle was in recovery for, is it has been in recovery for 25 years and they find out in their early recovery or in their active addiction that they have family members that stopped using years ago, but nobody talks about it. But the the first thing is this communication where the family's able to have a safe space to say, yeah, me too. You know, there was a time in my life where 
the gambling was out of control. The porn was out of control. The sugar was out of control. I smoked a pack a day. I drank liquor for years. And then, you know, I gave it up, you know, on my own terms with a program. However, but there is some solidarity in that to say, wow, it's not just me that took a wrong turn here. This is something that we're battling as a family. It may not look the same for everybody, but we're all battling it. And it's it's funny in in my company, what what I say is I recognize where there's a lot of gray areas. There's a lot of gray areas about things like rock bottom, putting them out, how to get somebody into recovery, empowerment versus enabling. The one thing that is non-negotiable with me is this is a disease and it is not a disease of willpower. And it is something that is, does strongly go with the family lines, right? And if you look at the science of it, there are actually genes that have been isolated and found in people with substance use disorder straight through the family line. So it's it's really not, you can't really argue with that, with that particular science. I like that too, because when I, for, I never knew it was a disease, obviously I was in act, like, like inactive addiction. But as soon as I was in treatment and found that out, it was like, it flipped a switch and I, it's helped me a lot throughout my recovery. Keep going. Just that knowing that for me anyways. Have you likened it to an allergy? That helps a lot of people. A lot of people yes, say. And that's funny too. Cause my grandma when she was alive, she used to always say that my grandpa had an allergy to alcohol and that's why he passed away. Yeah. It's amazing. Mm-hmm. My, my grandmother, also an alcoholic was told by her doctor that she had cirrhosis of the liver. And if she took one more drink, she would die like immediately. And it's, it's a, I mean, she was a very, very smart woman. And she never challenged it. And she never had a raging alcoholic, never had another drink. The doctor said, you drink again, you'll die. And instead of being like, well, that's, you know, that's nonsense. You're, you know, I'm not going to die. That doesn't really make sense. She, I don't know if she just used it as an excuse and she really wanted to stop or she really believed him because back then, if you were a doctor, whatever you said, you know, the patient did. I don't know, but she never took another drink and would say to the family, one drink, I'm dead. One drink, (laughs) you know, like really, really dramatic about it. (laughs) But, and, and we, we laugh about it now in my family, but she was an alcoholic. And I mean, my parents would drive with us in the car. So banged up. I don't know how I'm alive. I, I don't, I really don't know. And until I started doing this work, I never realized the impact of being an adult child of an alcoholic, because I just kept bringing more alcoholics into my life and being like surprised that I was dating these drinkers and being like, well, I couldn't save my family. I can't save this guy. Now he's a hot mess. Um, I'm just attracted to all this chaos, never really put it together until I started doing this work, but the cycle just repeats and repeats, right? Did any of you end up with a significant other with substance use disorder? Mine doesn't drink. I think I scared her away from it. 
yeah, that happens. That happens a lot. I was going to say, though, because um, you grew up uh, with alcoholics. I get kind of nervous and stressed sometimes because I have a daughter and um, kind of looking into the future, which I shouldn't, but just at like when she goes to try alcohol or any of that kind of stuff or how could you prepare like how could you prepare for that yeah so it's early education because i'm sure none of you started using with the idea of ending up where you ended up right (laughs) and and it's funny because like when somebody says to me addiction's a choice that's where i sort of go off the rails with starting out to say like experimentation is normal. It's normal to like take a beer from a family member, you know, sneak this, do this, go out with friends, smoke some weed, all this stuff. But I think getting ahead of it with your daughter and saying, this is what I went through. This is the early warning signs that I'm going to tell you about as early as possible. This is why it's something that you may be able to try and be fine with it. Cause I don't really drink me personally. Right. But you have to be aware that this was my journey and my path. And it could possibly be something that you struggle with based on my past. Right. Cause we, we, we have to, as a society, stop hiding all this. Right. I mean, and I'll tell you when I, when I start to talk to people I have to sometimes pull it out of them. Well, my mom does drink a lot. Well, what do you mean a lot? Well, she drinks every day, um, starts about four, ends about 11. I don't talk to her after 6 p.m. It makes me really nervous. It makes me really anxious. Well, have you told her how you feel? Oh, no, I could never. I never told my mother how I felt. I did this thing called stuffing, right, where I stuffed it all down and then I record kept right? I record kept all her wrongs. And then one day the cork popped out and it was, uh, it was off to the races. And I think she was almost 80 and I was bringing up shit when I was in the fifth grade. And she, and when you, y'all ever do that to somebody where you're bringing, you record keep, like you got that stuff stuck in the back of your mind. You're like, and in 1995, (laughs) this is what happened. The worst the worst thing you could do. So like one of the things we do is we teach people how to talk to their loved ones using I statements and with compassion, but being really firm at the same time, right? Firm compassion and I statements, right? I think, I feel, or my favorite thing, I don't know, I'll get back to you. What do you think you should do? Right. But with, with your daughter, it's really getting out in front of it as soon as possible. I know you see other people drink. This is why I don't drink. I had one and it was not enough. And then a thousand was not, wait, what is it? One is not enough. Thousands too many. One is too many and a thousand's never enough. There you go. And, (laughs) and tell her, and you know what? Bring her into this world that you've created through your sobriety and talk about, I'm going to my meetings. Cause if you had diabetes, you would tell her right away, right? Yeah. You had diabetes. It would be like, this is why dad can't have sugar. It's something, if you had heart disease, this is why dad doesn't eat salt. So it's the same thing. This is why dad doesn't drink or smoke or be around people that 
use drugs, right? It's a hard conversation, but it's so necessary. And eventually the more you educate her and she becomes comfortable with it, the more she can come to you with, I'm really struggling with this. I was at a party. This is what happened. And being really open with you because my daughter was not open with me because I was like a crazy person. And I was like, you can't drink. And I was so focused on her drinking and driving that I entirely missed the using of the heroin. Just that sounds like we, my mom kind of. Yeah. I mean, we were upper middle class. I, and her guy, the guy that she was dating died in her car, overdosed in her car. She gave him a sternal rub, brought him back, took him back to his mom's house. His mom said, he looks high. He had just gotten out of rehab. And the mom said, I'm really worried. He looks high. And she said, no, no, he's not high. And they went down the basement. My daughter came home and he died that night. And she didn't even tell me about it. She had a journal and she left the journal open on her bed and I read it. And that's how I knew that she was doing heroin and that this tragedy had happened. And Dave, when you talk about rock bottom, people that don't have substance use disorder all day long, that would be their rock bottom. The person that they cared about died and, and you lied about it, right? That would be your rock bottom, but it wasn't. It, that was sort of a trigger for more use, not less use. And that's when people sort of come at me with, it's not a disease. I know somebody that was using while they were pregnant. Um, I mean, the, the stories that clients tell me about their own journey, no one would choose this. No one would ever live this way. I mean, it's a, it's a disease of insanity. It's a disease of obsession. And that's where this education that we do with the families, where families are angry. Like, were y'all's families angry? Were they? Yeah. Because well, yeah. here's the thing. Anger is fear's bodyguard, right? Because even when you're in treatment, we hate to feel emotional pain, right? The human psyche hates emotional pain. So what we try and do is armor ourselves up with the worst case scenario. So when you're in treatment and when you're in PHP and when you're in halfway, we are already preparing for the relapse because we don't want to get emotionally hurt. So we can't even allow ourselves to feel hopeful. And it takes so much work to feel hopeful because all we have is fear of relapse. And then sometimes you don't relapse and we're still nervous. And it takes years for us to get past the fact that we're not going to get that call in the middle of the night, maybe, right? It's less and less every day. It's like trying to make a U-turn with a cruise ship. That's what the families are going through in early recovery. So we give them the tools from the minute that the client steps into detox until they are home or wherever their home is. We give them the perspective, Georgia, my partner is uh, four years clean and sober. And my uh, director of business development has dad that is an alcoholic and brother that has been clean 21 years. So we have these different perspectives and that's what we offer these families 
three nights a week. The amazing thing is that we should have like, our phone should be ringing off the hook every day. How do I sign up for this? 15,000 treatment centers and we can't get them signed. And the families need this like so, so, so much. They need this program. And the recovery centers say it's not in the budget and we're not that expensive. I mean, we are not that expensive, but they don't see the value in it because the value is what you know they're billing for, not what they're getting from. You hear a lot of uh, mental health and addiction not in the budget or no funding. Yeah, and the craziest part about that is these families that we're caring for are going in for depression, anxiety, panic attacks, all kinds of depression, medication, anxiety, medication. They need treatment and rehab themselves. Sometimes they are overeating to the point where they need knee replacements and new hips and all sorts of other medical conditions related to obesity because sugars lighten up the same center of the brain as cocaine, right? So if I am so, so sad, I am reaching for a Snickers bar, right? And all of that impacts the health care community downstream. So why not catch it and give them some tools straight up front so that they're not going in like me saying I'm having a heart attack and taking up emergency room staff. I mean, that's, that's crazy. I was in the emergency room for hours. They're monitoring my heart. And finally, somebody was like, is there anything going on at home? I mean, it was, it was not even in the first six hours that somebody said, so like, how's your mental health? Like what's going on? And then it was like, oh, so your heart is just fine. I mean, your heart is breaking, but it's the mechanics of it are working just fine. And that's crazy. I mean, thousands of dollars and I'm one person that that was spent on. And, and it's just, it's amazing that we can't get the word out, you know, loud enough of when we talk about manipulation and finances and codependency and, you know, the person that says, I need to come home a week early so I can adjust to the time difference when I get home. (laughs) I mean, and, and, you know, how you combat that, right. And, and how you, you know, when they say, uh, you know, halfway houses are just not for me. I just don't want to go. I'm too old for that, you know, and what to say. Um, Stacy, I got a couple things. Uh, I really relate to how you're saying, you know, you kind of warned your daughter about alcohol and you never suspected drug use. And I relate to that so much because, you know, I, you know, have family members who are alcoholics and my mom would always talk to me about it growing up. Right. But she would always talk about, say, my uncles or whatever who struggle with alcohol abuse. And that was always going to be the issue for me. Right. Um, but we never talked about, say, like my grandmother, who uh, I used to watch like do pills all the time. Right. So we never so we never talked about that. But we talked about the alcohol, I guess, because one was a bit more acceptable than the other. Um, but like and then I remember when she kind of first found out about my addiction, she was getting mad at me, like, um, kind of saying things about like, I probably expected alcohol, but I would never expect cocaine. Right. And so I, I would, I really like, I don't know, that connected with me for some reason. I was like, yeah, okay. This, you know, I don't know if I just like bypassed that or something. So that's strange. But if, so 
did you start with alcohol and then decide that if this is good, something else must be better? Yeah. Um, okay. Well, I started like, like I would drink occasionally and then uh, I was introduced to cocaine and that was just like uh, another. Yeah. And that's why when people, and uh, we just became legal in New Jersey here mm-hmm. and I am very much against legalization of weed because in a lot, not everybody. Okay. But for some people, if you already have an identified addictive gene and a trauma background, if a little is good, then more must be better. And if this is how weed makes me feel, then how does cocaine make me feel? And what about some oxy and how about some Xanax and what is heroin? Right. Because my daughter did start with weed. So she started there and she would always come home and she would kiss me goodnight. And I would be cognizant that she never smelled like alcohol. And I have such a sensitive nose to what alcohol smells like. And she never smelled like alcohol. And I, you know, she didn't really, she never even really smelled like weed because it was very briefly with the weed. And then it went right to pills, which then got to be too expensive to heroin, which at the time was really accessible and very cheap. And it was just, you know, the, you, I never would have believed it. If you had said to me, this is what the trajectory is going to be for this girl, I would have never in a million years would have believed that that was what was going to happen. But her dad became an alcoholic at 40. Both my parents were alcoholics. My grandmother was an alcoholic and all of my mom had five brothers and sisters. They used to come over on a Saturday afternoon and they would just get blasted drunk. I never thought that it was weird. Right. And I remember going to a friend's house in the sixth grade and the mom was pouring herself a glass of iced tea to have with dinner. And I remember my six-year-old, sixth in sixth grade, whatever, 13, 14 year old brain thinking, where's the whiskey? Like, why is this lady drinking iced tea? I'm so confused. I still remember that to this day. I mean, how crazy is that to think of now that that would be a memory, a core memory that stayed with me that this lady's not drinking whiskey. That's weird, right? And I wonder if she came to my house and was like, what the hell's going on here? You know, <laughs> like what is, it's not a party. This isn't New Year's Eve. What are these people doing? I mean, cause they were very irresponsible. Like in, you know, years later, reflecting back, it was like my parents had a litter of kittens and then sort of just forgot about them and left them to their own devices and just, you know, sat and talked to each other and had cocktails every night until they passed out. And I was determined to not have my daughter go down that same path. So we had high and low at dinner time and we had family dinner and we had all the things it, it didn't, I mean, addiction doesn't discriminate, doesn't matter. doesn't matter wh- how, where, and you, you can't, other than education and bringing it forward, you can't do anything to prevent it. Early intervention, right? I looking back. Missed a lot of signs, missed a lot of isolation, grades dropping, different friends, secrecy, coming home late, lying about things. All of those things, I missed them. And I was giving her the benefit of the doubt. And then when she was swearing she was clean and wasn't, 
I was also missing those signs because I wanted to believe she was clean and she wasn't. And I would have a dream about her using. And when she finally got clean, she said to me, you used to tell me about those dreams about me relapsing. And it used to make me feel so bad because I was never clean. So the whole time that she was in and out of rehab, it was just to come home and go right back out. And the final thing, the, what ended up getting her clean back to the, uh, you know, rock bottom, she was in a treatment center in Pennsylvania, in upstate Pennsylvania. Her roommate was a 40 year old alcoholic. My daughter was 17 or 18 at the time. And she looked at that woman and she said, if this is what addiction looks like at 40, I'm out because I don't want my looks to be affected this way. Like it, that's, that's how, like, there's no commonality. Cause I bet you there's, you could probably talk to people for the next 20 years and no one would say that's <laughs> that same reason, mm-hmm. right. As the reason they got clean. Um, Stacy, do, uh, could you touch on rebuilding trust a little bit? Yeah. So, uh, trust leaves on an airplane and comes back walking, <laughs> right? Yeah. So it's know, um, like when I went into rehab, I, uh, when I, when I got out, I thought everything would be like sweet done, yeah. but no, yeah. it's, it's like no. almost worse when you're worse when you get out. Yeah. Because everybody's tired of the, I'm sorry's they've heard it enough. And now if your lips are moving, you're lying and it's deeds and actions and communication. And I can't say it enough. And our meeting tomorrow night is on communication because when but it's important for the people who were you, who were you coming home to your, your significant other or your parents? Uh, my significant other. Okay. And so I guess my parents as well. Yeah. So it's really important for somebody coming out of treatment to say to their loved one, what do you need from me? It would be a great time for your significant other to say, when you're coming, when you're heading home from a meeting, just shoot me a quick text. If you're going out with guys for coffee, let me know you're going to be late. And if at all possible, when I text or call you, make every effort to answer because I'm feeling anxious and I know that it's going to change and I'm going to feel more on stable ground moving forward. But right now I feel really anxious. And if I don't hear from you, that just ratchets up. And the stories that I'm telling myself are in no way based on the truth, but they can be pretty wild things. And you can say to her, I'm going to a meeting. It's 30 minutes away. It's going to be about an hour and a half. We may or may not go out afterwards. I'll text you. And some people sort of get their back up with that. And they're like, no, I'm not, you know, that's me being tracked or monitored or, or, you know, I don't want to be accountable for every minute. Well, what you want to do to rebuild that trust is all those things. Um, and then that sort of eases up over time, but it's you doing those things to get it to ease up, right? If you say, I'm going to go get the oil changed in the car, do it. If you're going to take a package to the post office, do it. If you're going to pick up your daughter, get there early, all of those and communicate with I statements. I'm feeling like I'm struggling today. I need to go to two meetings. I'm feeling a lot of challenges. 
I don't want to go to your brother's house this weekend because everybody will be drinking and I'm on unstable ground right now. Right. So, and as we're coming into the holidays, this is where people struggle because people in early recovery don't want to say, I can't come. People that are having the party are on pins and needles or the loved ones. Like, I don't know how to handle this. We just got to say the things, right? And then we have to deliver on what we say we're going to do, right? And it's about being reliable and it's about being where you're supposed to be early and communicating with where you are. I have a client that her, he was on a Zoom meeting, really important meeting for work. He's um, only 30 to 45 days sober. She was texting and calling. He couldn't stop the Zoom. He was in the middle of a presentation. She called 37 times, right? Because in her mind, the first few times after she couldn't get a hold of him, her mind was off to the races and he was at the bar. Not true at all. Not true at all. Now it becomes, it can become kind of crazy, right? Because you don't want someone stalking your every move. So it's about being proactive. This is what my day looks like today. Because here's the thing, it's not forever. Because the trust does come back, but it comes back walking and it's slow. I remember my daughter eating a soft pretzel. She left some of the uh, pieces of salt on the table. I was like, this is crack. And it wasn't, right? It, it wasn't crack at all. I mean, I, but I was insane. Like this is the insanity of the, of the family member, right? I walked into a yoga class because I thought she wasn't there. She was there. I was embarrassed. She was embarrassed. And this is in early recovery because again, even a lot of people won't admit that they're addicted to your addiction, but they are. And they are guarding themselves up for the inevitable relapse. And when you don't relapse, they don't know what to do. And they don't know how to focus on themselves. They don't even know who they are. They don't know if they like gardening. They don't know if they like singing. They don't remember anything about themselves before your addiction. Because I should have been in life. yoga myself, not following her to yoga. <laughs> you know, like I should have, I should have been in a yoga class. Let's come on. Stacy. Um, so I'm really grateful for my family and my support system, um, in my recovery. Uh, I I'm so thankful for them. And I often think about say, uh, with like a dysfunctional family where, you know, the majority of the family is using or drinking, um, and someone reaches out and gets help and they're in treatment. Um, and it's easier for say the family to want that person to go back to using, right. To return to normalcy. Oh, yeah. Um, how do you kind of work with families like that? And, um, yeah, that's pretty much my question. So I encourage those clients to find a chosen family rather than a birth family. And that's a tough thing to say because many of those clients want their families in this hallmark idealistic way of the Instagram families that they see or families of people they know, but we can't trying to change somebody's like trying to grow a tail right? You're never, ever going to be able to be successful in doing either one of those things. But I tell people that once you get into a strong program and a community, those people are your family. If you're in a 12-step program, they will fold you in, 
in a way that your family cannot fold you in because of their own challenges. And it's okay to not have a traditional Thanksgiving, a traditional Christmas. It is okay not to sit down around a turkey with 12 side dishes that somebody cooked for five hours and you're going to eat for 15 minutes. It is okay to go out and have Chinese food or have, you know, a a barbecue with your chosen family. And my daughter lives in Florida right now. And her partner has been clean for 13 years. She's been clean for 10. They have the biggest chosen family. They're both sponsors. They have sponsors and they work in H&I program. So they go into hospitals and institutions to speak. And they, my son-in-law runs a family group at his house every Wednesday night. He opens his home up to people that are newly in recovery. That tribe that they've created, while there's no substitute for bio family, this family is just as important. And it's hard, Mark, because I, I worked with a girl that she said, I can't go over to my sisters. They're all just drunk and there's so much weed and I'm too fragile right now. And I, I said, you can't, go. it's, it's okay to say, I can't today. It's a, like, no is a complete sentence, but we're all so worried about hurting people's feelings that we can't say no. But when we do, it's such a relief. My uh, business, my director of business development, her brother, 21 years sober, he said he misses alcohol the same today than he did 21 years ago. Now, many, and again, it's so different, right? Because for my daughter, it, I don't think she has the same response, but he, he's gone to a wedding for 30 minutes. And as soon as things start to get wild, he's like, I got to go. It was lovely to see you all. I got to go. And that's okay for him. And I mean, imagine that courage that it takes. So he's one of eight and they have all kinds of parties, reunions and barbecues. And this one's getting married and all of these things. And he says, I'm going to come this is how long I think I'm, I can stay. And then I'm out. Like, isn't that amazing? Like that somebody's able to be that comfortable. He doesn't, he doesn't care. He's not putting somebody else's feelings before his sobriety. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. We talked about that, about being kind of like selfish in recovery. Right. And if you're not, sometimes it can do the worst thing and compromise your own sobriety. Like if you that's a great sure. point. We talk about that a lot in the family meetings, because when you all come out of treatment and you're starting to form these relationships in AA or NA, and you're starting to work with your sponsor and work the steps, your loved ones may be like, well, hold on a second. I didn't sign up for all this time away. The grass hasn't been cut and the dishwasher is making a funny noise and the bills are stacking up and this kid is driving me crazy right? What are you doing? And we spend a lot of time talking about that, that the loved ones have to have the grace to understand that selfishness. Because like when you're coming home, we talk about it, like if somebody's coming home from a long trip and you get home and you have all your dirty laundry and you have all these emails and you have all these bills and the grass is high and the car needs an oil change and all those stressors are coming into somebody that's coming home newly out of recovery and everybody's saying, put your sobriety first, get to a meeting. And then you have these competing priorities. So it's like, what do you do first? Cause then my wife is mad. 
or my mom is mad and I'm not doing what I'm supposed to be doing at home. And I got to get to a meeting because that's how I'm going to stay sober. What do I do? And again, it's saying, I would love to help you with these things right now, but I can't because this is where I build a foundation of recovery and it's got to start today. And I have to go. I love you. And that's where the Zoom meetings come into play where there's an AA or an NA meeting 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Same thing with Al-Anon and Naranon. Maybe you don't have to leave the house and you're you know, still present there, but you're at a meeting. But yeah, that selfishness really does sometimes play havoc on the dynamic with the family because the family's already mad. And now you're like coming home and you're like, bye, I'm going out with my new friends. <laughs> and the wife is like, uh, what are you talking about? Like, I thought you were better. And I, I mean, the stories that we hear, um, one woman told us that she came to detox because she was told that that was how she was going to learn how to drink successfully. <laughs> so that was why she was there. She drank a lot of champagne and she wanted them to teach her how to manage her champagne consumption. So you do hear a lot of interesting things in this business. I'm sure you all have heard just about everything. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Stacy, I don't know if this kind of Mark's last question, it might be the same, but or somewhat the same answer, but uh, <clears throat> what I know, like with us, three we've had the support of our families and like a lot of support each of us but some people don't have any family or any family support so how do like how is it different that way it it really challenges them to find their people and for a lot of them it starts in halfway or three quarter way where they form these bonds with people. But it's also a lot of times where they develop a really fast romantic relationship because they're so panicked by not having people when they get out and that's never good either. So some people I, I'm encouraged when they're bringing like distant cousins or they're bringing a, you know, grandpa to the meeting or, or an aunt to the in-person meeting because their sort of um, biological, you know, mom, dad, brother, sister is so dysfunctional that they're going beyond that to have that connection of family. And I always, I have a, a private client that I coach that I keep saying to her, your family, your chosen family, your chosen family, because everyone else in her family is just off the rails, not willing to get help. And she worries about them so much that she can't move on because she, she's so paralyzed by fear for these other people, right? And I say to her, tell me about your friends. Like, and she'll say, oh, this one girl, she's been there for me forever. And, you know, she's my sounding board and I met her here. And, she, and I'm like, well, that's your fat. Like we have to start changing what we think family is because addiction, again, when we talk about it being in the family, if mom and dad are banged up, they're not going to be able to be supportive for you and be there for you because they're dealing with their own stuff. And a lot of times people will say to me, I don't know if I can go home. They're drinking every night. 
I don't know if I can go live there, you know, because it's just around all the time. And, you know, how do you manage through that when people, you know, and, and money comes into play, right? Because how are you going to manage not going home when you don't have any money? See, see, I did. Oh, sorry, Mark. No, I'm sorry, Dave. Go on. <laughs> so you touched you touched on a little bit earlier with um, kind of like early detection and 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 that sort of thing. Are, are there any tips? I guess or warning signs. Um, I mean, I mean, I know you touched on it with Jared dealing with his daughter, but maybe some parents that maybe haven't been through it themselves, and their kids are just going. You know, they're just young and just you know experimenting. But how do you kind of maybe plant that seed? We talked about that a little bit before too, like planting the seed with those kids to realize that, you know, potentially it could turn into an issue later on. So I think the one thing is to trust your intuition. It's almost never wrong. So when you're seeing things and you're smelling things, like all your senses, you're seeing things, you're hearing things, you're feeling like something's off. You have to have a conversation with them. This is what I'm noticing. I'm curious what you think, right? And again, I statements, not you stayed out till 12, you're failing your science test. You crashed the car into a pole. You, you know, I mean it. So, and it's a tough situation. Cause again, I did everything wrong. I tossed her room. I drug tested her. I, um, followed her. I did all these crazy things where it was just a battle, right? Me against her, not we're on the same team against this disease. It was me against her, not me and her against the problem for a long time, right? Remember fears, uh, angers, fears, bodyguard. I was really mad, but it was the underlying fear, right? So to say I statements, I am noticing that you're falling asleep at the table. I'm noticing your grades took a plunge. I'm noticing that you're not hanging out with the people that you were on the sports teams with or that you're not bringing your friends around. I'm noticing money is missing. Can you tell me about that? And if they still won't open up, then it might be a good idea to do you know, an early intervention with a therapist or a professional, right? And bring somebody in. But sometimes you can't drag them there no matter what, right? And then in what it's been in my experience is you got to go pee in this cup. I'm worried, right? You got to, or you got to breathe into this apparatus, right? Um, and that's sort of a last ditch effort where we're tossing the room we're tossing the car, we're, you know, taking the phone, we're going through the text messages. I mean, it's there and it's mostly the phone that it trips any, anybody up, right? That's where, you know, they say uh, switch phones with your partner, 90% of relationships would end. Switch phones with them for a day, have them go through your phone. Um, but that's where the answers are, but you have to try the kinder, gentler approach first. But if it doesn't work, you sort of have to go a little bit sort of more aggressive because at the end of the day, nobody wants to end up with a 16-year-old heroin addict. I mean, it's just, I wouldn't wish that experience on my worst enemy. I almost drove her car off the roof of a parking garage. I opened the door. I, was, I went to get it. She was in school. She went to 
um, a local private college. And uh, I went to pick up the car when she went to rehab and I opened the door and it was just filled with bags and blood. And I thought it is going to be easier to just drive this car off the roof of this garage rather than watch this kid die. And that that's like the insanity of the family. And that's why they need so much help and support because they don't know what to do. Like all your questions are great questions because they just don't know what to do next. And going to Al-Anon and Naranon is great, but you know, it's a process. And admitting you're powerless over the addict, I never got there. I failed step one because I just kept trying to force my will on this kid that just was lying to me. But I was also really putting on some blinders about looking back now. I'm like, uh, you know, you don't want to believe it. You just don't want to believe it. But when it's like right in front of you and you know, you had 40 bucks in your wallet and now you have five, like, you know, gaslighting is real. They don't know they're gaslighting you, but that's what it is, right? No, I didn't clip something and tear the, you know, side view mirror off the car. No, that's not my, you know, solo cup on the lawn. No, that's not my vomit. No, that's, I mean, it's just, it's crazy. Stacy, why, like, why is it that, I don't know, I always lied and manipulated. Why is it, why is it that alcoholics and addicts can never go to their parents or um, anyone with, and just tell the truth? Shame. Shame. Yeah. So shame is the loss of connection. And we want to feel connected to those people. And when we tell the truth, we automatically have that disconnection, me versus them. So it's now I'm different than you. And I'm telling you that I have a problem that you don't have. And I'm ashamed of it, right? It's embarrassment, it's shame, and it's fear of what the unknown is for what the retribution is going to be because you can't control it right? So if you're using, you know, you go out, you get your drug of choice, or you get your uh, alcohol of choice, you sort of know that trajectory. This is what's going to happen. I'm going to buy it. I'm going to get high. And this is what I'm going to feel like. You tell somebody that's all the control for the responses on them. You've now given up every ounce of control and you can't put that secret back in the bag. Now, everybody knows this is who you are. And it's, it's done. It's out. And now you also can't go back to your old way of being because now these people are watching you. Right. And if you want to keep doing what you're doing, you're going to try and hide it for as long as possible because you don't really want to change in that moment. Right. Even though, you know, it's wrong. I had a guy Thursday night. He said, I would cry on the way to the liquor store. And I would cry in the parking lot. I would know it was wrong. And I would know where I was going. And I would, I knew the path. I would, I had not convinced myself I could drink successfully. I was going down that bad path and I was spiraling out of control. And I still went in and bought it. Like that. I'd sit out front of liquor stores for 45 minutes, trying not to go in and still end up going in. I had, (laughs) um, so I don't know if y'all have read this in the, I think it's in the big book uh, where somebody compared 
alcohol addiction to a person that's not an addict takes a laxative. And then when the laxative starts to work, don't go to the bathroom. Yeah. <laughs> that's addiction. That's very accurate. Got it. Yeah. It, uh, you know, if, if a little is good, more must be better, right? 600 hats, one head. Right? <laughs> we don't think of that as addiction, right? That's not shocking. People just go, oh, he's quirky as 600 hats. I mean, you know, people have 2000 pairs of Jordans of sneakers, right? They're trying to figure out what credit card they still have some room on to buy the next thing on eBay. Guess what? That's, that's imbalance and that's addiction, right? They're obsessing over the next hat, the next pair of sneakers, the next Krispy Kreme donut, eating six donuts in a sitting. But we, we, that all is like socially acceptable, but you know, addiction is the dirty secret in the family that we all need to work at not making it such a secret and getting the stigma of addiction. It, if you had heart disease, no, everybody would be like, oh my gosh, what can we do to help? Here's some healthy recipes. Let's go for a walk after dinner. Did you get your water in today? Did you take your meds? That's what it would be if it was heart disease. It's addiction. People are like, no, no, not in my family. Shh, don't tell anybody. It's wild, right? Yeah, you're absolutely, absolutely right. Can um, I read something to you guys? Of yeah. course. So okay. this was uh, written by someone that did not share their name. And I read this at every meeting that we have. And it says, a message from an addict to their loved ones. If you really want to help me, go to a meeting. Learn all you can about my addiction. Learn to say no and set boundaries with me. I won't like it. I may yell at you, but do it anyway. Know that addiction has hijacked my thinking. I'm not myself right now. I need you to act in my best interest until I can. Please be strong. Don't give in to me. Reach out for support. You're the best chance I have. Well, Pretty powerful, tough. right? Yeah, that was tough. Yeah. 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 Really great. That I mean, great. I, and I, I, I teach nursing, right? And I teach for a local university and I presented my uh, doctoral thesis to a group of professionals at the college. And I asked everybody to close their eyes and they closed their eyes. And I said, raise your hand if your life has been impacted by addiction. How many people do you think raised their hand? Everyone. There you go. Yeah. Why do you think I had them close their eyes? It would have been zero. There you go. <laughs> guys are smart. It would have been zero because all of their tenured professors, their bosses, the administrators at the college were all in the room and they would have never agreed to raise their hand unless they had them close their eyes. Yeah, that's, uh, that's sad. Um, yeah. we, had a, uh, we had a doctor join us for yeah. an episode and um, he, uh, he puts out a newsletter to, I guess, the Canadian Association of Doctors or whatever, whatever it's called. So he puts out this newsletter regarding addiction, has no one reply to the, to the newsletter via email, right? Because it's in writing. Wow. <laughs> he says when he's in the hospital, he has to go to the hospital, he's in there for a weekend. 
in that one weekend, he has three separate doctors come up to and talk to him one-on-one -on -one because it's not written. Right? Yeah. To me, that is so sad. Yeah, but the, the long-term effects of putting something that like that in writing, um, a nurse I know put something in writing at work about her struggles and now they're coming for her license. And this happened 10 years ago before she was even a nurse. And now they're, they're investigating her, um, for her license. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's just amazing. And the, the education, you know, we, we talked more about COVID than we did about addiction and addiction has killed more people than COVID ever even would hope to. And yet we're not worried, right? We're just still talking about COVID. Absolutely. Yeah. Fellas, any more questions for Stacey? I'm okay right now, but I do really like that anger is fear's bodyguard. I really like that. Well, thank you. You can borrow that anytime you want. You might great. just do that. <laughs> you can take that. Yes. Um, uh, Stacy, I just want to thank you. Um, and I really want to thank you for what you're doing and what you're doing with navigating addiction. I think it's amazing. And I think you, you've seen a problem that family members go through and, you know, you came, you're working on and coming up with a solution for that. And I think that's amazing. And uh, I don't know, just want to say thank you. You're welcome. We, we try. Um, we, we, we're really proud of what we put out and we, even if we could help one person navigate this with their family member, we'll feel like we did a good job at the end of the day. It was so great meeting all of you guys. It was great to meet you as well. Um, so I'll take us out guys. If you or someone, you know, is struggling with addiction, please reach out and ask for help. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you.